This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Good to have y'all. How are we doing? So again, we're, we always seem to tend better this way on the response to that question. Um, so appreciate you guys. How are we doing over here? Just any response. It doesn't have to be good, just a response. Okay, perfect. Super. Um, man, so today at 1230, uh, we have an interest meeting for our first international mission trip, Southeast Asia. Uh, we'll be going this summer. Uh, so I know we've had a few RSVP. Um, if you are interested in coming and you have not RSVP'd, uh, just let myself or Mike know. Um, but, but we're going to Southeast Asia this summer uh, for our first international mission trip. And, and the heart behind that, I was just even looking back at you know, the end of every gospel, the beginning of Acts 1, as Jesus is ascending to heaven, he commissions his church. Anyone, anyone who takes on the name of Christian. So if you are here today and you, you say, I am a Christian, then Jesus' command to you is to go to all nations and make disciples um, of all people. So does that mean necessarily that, that you yourself are going to go to Southeast Asia? Perhaps. I would hope that everybody would go at some point, um, at some capacity. But it does mean that we all play a part in making disciples of all people among all nations. Every single one of us, right? If you're a Christian, it's not just for some people and, and not for, for you. It's for all of us. Um, and so one of the things Mike and I have been talking about, um, and, and you've heard us say this, that if, if that's not happening in this church, then it's, just, man, it's one of the few things that would make us want to close the doors and take off. If we're not actually reaching people who don't know Jesus, it's one of the few things that we would just say, eh, well, what's the point then? What are we doing? Let's go, let's go join a different church. Um, and, and so just know that's our heart. Is There are too many people who don't know the hope of Christ, and we want them to know Jesus. And so let me, let me encourage you, um, up at Summit Church in North Carolina, who we're partnering with, they've started this, uh, I don't know if it's called a campaign or just this, they're asking the question, who's your one? And by that, they're saying, Every person, pick one person that you want to pray for, that you want to intentionally love, you want to intentionally reach out to within a given year. So just say one person this year. And, and I forgot the, the math. I should have looked this up. I didn't plan this. This is all like on the spot. So th there's some math that if every current Christian reached one person in a year, and then the next year everybody reached one person, it's a really short amount of time before the entire world would hear the gospel. And so it's just this idea of like, okay, let's not say like, man, who are the 48 people I'm going to go share the God? Like, who's just one person? One person that God has put in your life right now that you can pray for, that you can invite to your community group, that you can invite to a Sunday. Because just think about that, right? If we all have one person, this room doubles. And there's more people hearing the gospel. There's more people encountering the church. And so let me just challenge you with that. Who's your one? Who's one person in your life right now? And I'm going to give you a second just to think about it that you know is in your life and that you can pray for and invite to, to come with you and share the gospel with. Who's your one? Think about it for a second. Okay, that, that, that's all. That's it. So, um, so we're going to pray a lot today. Uh, the, the passage that Marcella read from that we're in in Ephesians is on prayer, and so we're going to pray a lot. So let's pray uh, right now again for God to speak to us. Father, we, we need you. Your voice is the only voice we need. And so right now, would you tune out every other distraction? Would you just let us hear from you? 
We're desperate for you. We are desperate for you. Heal us, restore us, give us confidence and strength in who you are. It's in Christ we ask. Amen. So have you ever had one of those moments where it just seems like your eyes were opened to a reality that was probably always there? You just didn't, you didn't see it for whatever reason. And you're kind of like, how did I miss this? Like, I was so dumb. How did I not know that this was true. You know, like just one of those kind of aha moments in, in your life. I, I remember, and if I, would have, if I would have thought of this earlier, I would have actually done the illustration, but instead I just sent Robert a picture. So we have a picture, I think, of the rocks. Um, I, I believe, Dakota, it's like two, maybe two uh, jars with rocks, and there it is, perfect. So I remember as a kid, growing up in my, my little, my Southern Baptist church, how you always had, uh, what was it called? Children's church, where the kids came forward. And I remember, this is the one, this is probably the one thing I remember from from growing up, is this illustration where Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things that we get anxious about and we worry about, these will be added to you. So, the, so the, the order is seek first the kingdom of God, and then everything else will happen. And so the illustration is that the big rocks are the, the, the things that are of eternal purpose, that, that, that are of the kingdom of God. So, right, so being in worship, reading the Bible, obeying um, the Lord, seeking the Lord, like those are the big rocks. And, and if we seek first the kingdom of God, then everything else, according to God's time management system, will, will find its right place. But if we, if we try to do the little things first, illustrated by the, the little grain or rice or whatever, if we try to do all these little things first, the things that don't matter as much, and then we try to add in the big things, there's just not enough time in the day. But if we do the big things first, if we put in the big rocks, and then we do the little things, the little things all seem to find their, their place, and then it all, it all fits. Right? Is that, is that making sense there? Start with the big things and all the little things will have space. Start with the little things and you're not going to have room for the big things. And I remember as a kid being like, that makes perfect sense. I get it, right? Like the lights just came on where if I start with what matters most, then the other things will, will have time. But if I start with the little things, I'm always going to be chasing and wanting the big things and I'm never going to have time for it, right? So it's just one of those times where it's like, oh my gosh, I see. Now, do I do that well? Not all the time. I mean, definitely there's times where all the little things are taking over, but I, at least I get it. I understand that, that now. And so here's what's clear in, in the Bible. And here's what's, we just see it here in Paul's prayer, is that when we have the proper perspective, everything else seems to take place. Everything else seems to follow. When, when we see what matters most, and in this, in what Paul's praying, is when we see God, like when we really see God, and we, not just like a, an image of him or a thought of him or a distant picture or an idea, but like when we really see the living, active God who is here right now, present among us, like when we get a glimpse of God, everything else changes and follows suit. Everything else then gets in its proper place. That's what Paul, he's coming into these verses, and that's what he is praying for. So we see it in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And this is his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And then he goes on, and we'll get to that. I've got to get rid of this thing. It is bouncing around. Is it working? Hello? Hello? Yes? Yeah. Oh, praise the Lord. Get rid of this thing. 
Casey, we're changing. So Paul's prayer, Paul's prayer, he's asking God that he would, that God would open the eyes of the Ephesian church, that they would, that they would see who God is. That, that God would grant them spiritual eyes to see him. So what I think, one of the biggest problems that we have in our faith and in life is that we, we just don't have the proper view of God. We just, we think too smallly of God. Small is not a word, but it is today. Well, I, that happens a lot around here. We, we think too little of God. There you go, the thesaurus. We think too little of God and we think too big of ourselves. Our view of God is too small and our view and our confidence in ourself is too big. And when we have that inverted view, we're going to struggle. It's going to fall short. And Paul is praying. Paul knows as one who, who wasn't even looking for God and Jesus shows up and, and completely gives him eyes to see for the first time Jesus and his life is never the same. Right? You see it time and time again in the Word where, where their eyes are opened and their life is never the same. They see God. They, they truly see him. Right? Isaiah chapter 6. He sees the holiness of God and he can't help but fall in worship. And then God's like, hey, who's going to go for me? And Isaiah's like, me. I am, because he got a glimpse of God. He saw who God is. And so that's Paul's prayer here, right? That we would see what is happening. I think so often we just don't see that all around us is this spiritual world, that there is a God who is fighting for us and wanting us to see him. And on the other side, there's an active enemy that is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And so we just don't see what is happening around us. And if we had spiritual eyes, if we saw who God was, Everything else, Paul is saying, will take place. Everything else will fall in line. And so Paul is just praying, oh, that we would see God. He's asking. Now here's the deal. We can't, we can't force God's hand. He, he's God. We're not. That's why, that's why we're here, right? Because we're not God. And so I can't force God to, to do anything. I always love the, the sailboat analogy, right? Like you can get out in the middle of a lake in a sailboat but you can't f make the wind blow. But you, you sure as heck can set the sail, right? Like, you can't, I can't get out there and make the wind blow, but also the wind can blow, but if I don't have the sail up, I'm still not going to go anywhere. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's setting the sail. He's doing his part, and he's asking the Lord, Lord, please, will you open their eyes? Will you let them see? Will you give them revelation in the knowledge of you? So like I said, we're going to pray a lot today. And so we're going to pray again. We're going we're to set the sail. Will you, if you are willing, will you ask God to open your eyes to see him? Not your physical eyes, but like Paul said, the eyes of your heart. Will you ask God? And that may be uncomfortable for you. You may be like, I don't really understand this. And, and that's where faith comes in. Will you ask God right now, God, will you open my eyes to see you, to understand your word, and to see you in a different way today? And so let's pray. Let's ask God to open our eyes, to give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him.
Father, there are a lot of things that we can look at today. There are a lot of things that we can think on today. But your word tells us that there is nothing more important, nothing more valuable, nothing more life-changing than seeing you. And so, God, we can't control you, but we want to ask, and I believe that this is something you want to do. Will you let us see you? Every person in this room today, will you let us see you in a way that we haven't before? Maybe for the first time ever. Open the eyes of our heart. Give us the, the wisdom, the knowledge of who you are that everything else will just pale in comparison to you. And Jesus, we ask. Amen. So then Paul goes on and he tells us what he's, what he's praying that we see in God. And I think this is a good prayer that we can pray for yourself. It's a prayer that I've started praying for us as a church. It's a prayer that I've started praying for Stephanie and for our kids. This is, this is a prayer when you're like, what do I pray? How, that it's always good to pray the words of God because we know this is his will. So it's always good to come and say, all right, God, what do I pray? Well, Paul gives us a prayer right here that he's praying for the Ephesians, that he's praying for us, and that I believe that, that God wants us to see and know of who he is. And so this is what he continues to pray and ask for the church to see. So he's praying, God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation the knowledge of him. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, First thing, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul is praying that the Ephesians would know the hope to which God has called them. That they would know, the, not, not just in a distance, but personally, experientially, that they would stand and know the hope to which God has called them. Now the word hope in the English language uh, is tough because I, I asked my kids the other day, like, what, what does the word hope mean? And they started listing off like, I hope to get this for Christmas. I hope to get a swimming pool in our house. I'm like, kids, we're in central Austin. We're not getting a swimming pool. Like, just die to it, right? You know, but they're, they're hoping to get a swimming pool. They're, they're wishful thinking, right? We have hopes all the time. I hope to get this job. I hope to be married and have a family one day. I hope to get a raise, right? We have all these hopes that, that maybe it'll happen, but maybe not. I hope to win the lotto and then just retire and be done, right? Like, we have all of these hopes and with that we mean wishes like wishful thinking but that's not what the word hope in the bible means when when paul says that we would know the hope it is not it's not a uh, maybe like that would be nice if, if it happened but the word hope is a certain confidence that we can stand in it, it's a it's a certainty of good that is coming so the, the way we oftentimes use the word hope is like, man, I hope, that, I hope that things get better in the future. And the way the Bible tells us is, my hope is that the future will be better. Right? There's two different ways to use the word hope. I hope that I have a better day. And the Bible says, my hope is in a better day. So completely different ways to look at the word of hope. And the Bible says, no, no, it is a certainty the hope that Paul wants us to know is a certainty that we can stand on, that will not change, and that we can really bank our lives to. And so what is this certainty that he speaks of? Titus chapter 2, 
uh, verse 11 gives us uh, a, great, a great definition of that certainty. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. The, the certain hope that Paul wants us to know is the hope of the gospel. That, that Jesus came to redeem us. We talked about that word, to set us free. To give us free life in him. That, that we were sinners, but Christ came to remove our sin on the cross and to rise from the dead and to give us life. And that is a hope that we can be confident in. But not only that, the hope that we have is that Jesus is coming back. That it's not just this, man, one day, maybe, maybe this will all work out. Maybe there will be this good. Maybe we'll go to heaven. No, no. One day Jesus is coming back and he's going to set all the wrongs right. Everything is going to be brought back to how it is supposed to be. And that is a hope that we can be confident in. The hope of the Bible is Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he be who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is sure of this. He's certain of this. He's hoping in this, that God began a good work, and he's not going to quit halfway through. He's not going to start something good in you and be like, oh, man, this got tough. Life got real messy in their lives, so I'm going to back on out from this one. No, the promise of God, the certain hope of God is that he will see your life through to the end. The, the hope of God that we get to stand in is Ephesians 1.3, that, that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is the confidence that we can stand in. That is the hope that, that Paul is praying that we see. It's, it's Romans 8.28, that God works all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That whatever you are going through in life right now, God is like, man, I'm working this good through it. And it may be, you, things may be good, and God's like, come on, I got better. Yes! That's the hope that we have in the gospel. I love Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I love that definition of hope. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Paul is praying that we see and know this hope that is found in Christ, the hope of the gospel. Because when we believe that and we have that hope, it changes our lives. It gives us a different perspective on suffering. Suffering is not just meaningless. It's not just a season of life that sucks. And it's like, well, that happened. No, suffering is something that God is using to shape and move us to a better place. 
That's the hope we have in the scripture. The hope of the gospel gives us endurance to keep running. Because it tells us, man, how do, I, how do I continue to deal with this person? How do I continue to pour myself out for this person when they're not pouring themselves out for me? Because the hope of the gospel is that one day we're going to stand before the Lord and he's going to say, well done. He's going to point to that season of life where you wanted to quit and you didn't want to love someone else, but you did because we have a hope that one day we're going to stand before the Father and he's going to say, well done. Well done. And so that hope gives us an endurance to keep going. That hope tells us that there's a home coming for us that is better than this one, and if we live for that one, we will not be let down. And so when we see this hope and we get it and we know it, it changes how we live today. And that is why Paul's like, Lord, please let them see this hope. Because it will change how they're living today. So let's pray. Have you seen this hope? Have you, have you really seen this hope? Is there anywhere in your life where you're, you're not believing in the hope of the gospel? Let's just pray and let's listen for a second. Have you seen this hope? Ask God to show you the hope that he's called you to in Jesus. God, the, the world tries to give us a firm foundation, but it's just not. It's shifting sand, and it will fall out beneath us. But Jesus, you are an everlasting rock. Lord, you, you keep those whose mind is set on you, whose hope is in you. You keep them in perfect peace for those who trust in you. God, for those who trust in you, that their roots of faith are deep and unshakable so that when the hard season comes, the fruit is still there. God, give us hope in you, a certain confidence in you. God, give me a hope in you, a certain confidence in you, and not in anything else. No, we, we need it. We need it. We trust in too many other things, and they let us down time and time again. You never fail. You never let us down. Let us know the hope that you have for us in Christ. Amen. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Second thing, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The second thing that Paul says, God open their eyes to see, let them see you, is that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, now the first time I read this, I thought that Paul was talking about our glorious inheritance, because he just, he just talked about that in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, right? So that's talking about our future home, 
the inheritance that we have of the future home. So I thought he was talking about that again. Like, man, let's, let's keep our eyes fixed on the inheritance that's coming. But he's not talking about our inheritance here. He's praying that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance. That we would know the value and worth of his inheritance, of what's coming to him. And so what, what is God's inheritance? Like, does God need something? Is he, is he waiting for, for this inheritance to come to him so that he can be complete? No, God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need you and me, which is actually good news. Because if God needed you or me, then he wouldn't be God, we would. It puts us in the position of power. So God doesn't need us, but he wants us. His inheritance, the riches of what is coming to God, is us. Deuteronomy 32, it says that, that his, his possession, his, um, his inheritance is his people. And as Isaiah 43, it says that, that we are precious in his eyes. That we are a treasure to God. Not because he needs us, but because he wants us. Because he desires us in relationship. So why does Paul want us to know this? Why does Paul want us to know the riches of God's inheritance in us? So that we can have like self-esteem and feel good about ourselves? You know, so that we can think like, man, how great are we that God wants us? No. That's not why. Paul wants us to know the riches of God's inheritance in us. Because it's when we know how loved we are by him that we then are desiring to love him. Because 1 John 4 says that we love because he first loved us. When we know his love for us, it sets us free to love him in return. Because God desires our hearts and our worship and our love, and he doesn't want it being guilty. He doesn't want this, oh my gosh, I've got to, I better show up, and I better, I better sing, I better open my Bible, like I better do this. God just wants our love for him. He wants us to respond in obedience simply because we want to. And the best way to shape our hearts to want God is for us to know how much he wants us. Romans 2 says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's knowing his love for us that says, oh my gosh, he loves me so much, I want to live differently. He loves me so much, I want to love like him. It's his kindness, not his, his firm fist, not his wrath, not his anger. It's his kindness that moves us to repentance. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, Paul says, the love of Christ compels me. It's the love of Christ that takes me and changes me and compels me to live differently. Have you ever been, have you ever been just truly and freely loved by someone? Like you just know, you just, that, that, that they just love you no matter what. Like no matter what. And it, it inspires you to love in return. It inspires you, it compels you, it changes you to give love back. I've shown this picture before, um, but I just, I, I loved it, and so I keep it on my computer. And, and in this is the man on the left is a Holocaust survivor to an American who freed him. And his quote, I love you, I love you so much. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a joyful response of love because of the selfless love first demonstrated to him. That this, this person gave of himself, and the only response is, I love you. I, I love you. I want to respond in love. And so Paul knows that when we see God's love for us, it's going to shape us and compel us to love him.
It's going to transform us. And so how do we know that we're loved? You can hear me tell you, and you can read it here, that God loves us, and you've heard it probably since you were a kid, that God so loved the world that he gave his only right. So how do we know that God loves us? You see, the great thing about God's love for us is not just that he said he loves us, but that he showed he loves us. It's one thing to hear someone say, I love you. It's another thing to see and to know they love you by their actions. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his love for us. God shows his love for us. God proves his love for us. God puts his money where his mouth is and his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so a couple hundred years ago, this, this man Jesus was nailed to a cross in Jerusalem. And he was innocent and perfect. And so why was he nailed to a cross? Because before time began, God chose us and that the way for us to be made his was for Jesus to suffer and die in our place. And so God demonstrated his love for us. He showed us his love for us. And so when we're struggling with, man, does God really love me? We just have to go back to the cross. That is the evidence, the proof the tangible demonstration of God's love for you. And what's incredible about the fact of, of God's choosing, of God's predestination, is that he chose to do that before you and I proved our worth. It's not like, it's not like we, we earned our salvation and God was like, man, these people are really impressive. I think I'm going to send Jesus to save them. Before anything, God chose to set his love on us. God chose to demonstrate his love for us. God chose to pursue us. God chose to lay everything down for us before we could ever earn it. And that's great news because we would never earn it. We could never earn it. So praise God that he chose to give it before we could actually try to earn it because otherwise we would always be on the outside looking in. But God's love is so great for you that before we could mess things up, God said, nope, I'm coming for you anyways. Have you ever been loved by someone that, quite honestly, probably shouldn't show you love? That's a powerful force. When we can grasp the weight, when we can see that God should have never shown us love, and yet he chose to in the greatest way possible, it changes things. It'll change our lives. Do you know that love? Do you know that love? Let's stop for a second. Let's pray. Let's sit. And, and maybe more than saying anything to God, listen to him speak to you. And listen to his words of love over you that you are his glorious inheritance in Christ. And let that change you from the inside out. So let's pray.
Lord God, would you let us know your love for us? Let us see your, your desire for us in a proper way, not that we were lovely, but that you chose to come make us lovely. Not that we were deserving, but that you chose to come and to freely give us worth and value. God, there is no other love that can match your love. Let us know, let us see how much you love us and change our hearts to love you in response. Amen. So Paul's praying that we would see God and have our eyes open to understand him and he says that, that we would know the hope the hope of the gospel, the certainty of what Christ has done for us. We would know it and that we would see the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, in us. And then thirdly, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That we would have confidence in knowing the immeasurable greatness of his active power toward us who believe. That, that God is in our corner and for us, that he is the ultimate customer, customer support team, like working on our behalf and he's got our backs and he's, he's in our lives and he's actively involved trying to help us and, and, and move us forward, that God is actively working with an immeasurable power. I think so often I forget that God is here and he's working for me. One of the, my favorite stories of, of just eyes being opened to see the power of God is 2 Kings chapter 6. And so in this, the Syrian army, the Syrian um, nation wants to destroy Israel, right? And so that's, that, that's been going on for hundreds of, and thousands of years. And so Syria wants to destroy Israel, and the Syrian king is like, okay, what's, like, what's their greatest strength? What's Israel's greatest strength? And someone says, well, they have this prophet, Elisha, who, who goes to God on their behalf. And so the Syrian king's like, well, let's take out their greatest strength, and then we cripple their army. And so the Syrian king sends an entire army to surround Elisha. And so it says here in, in verse 15, when the servant of the man of God, so that's just saying Elisha's servant, to give you, catch you up, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. So you've got Elisha and his servant and an entire army surrounding them, right? So things are not looking good for them. Like, that, that, that's tough odds. And so he's looking at that. He says, okay. So he goes and he wakes up, his, up Elijah. Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, do not be afraid. Time out. Like, let's just stop there for a second, right? The number of times God says don't be afraid in the Bible, greater than any other command in the entire scriptures. Wild to me. Like, why do I live in so much fear? I'm an idiot. Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Can you imagine? Just put yourself in the shoes of that servant. It's you and Elisha. There's an army surrounding you, and he's like, hey, it's cool. Don't worry about it, man. Like, don't be afraid. The, pe the, the, numbers, the numbers are on our side. One and two. One and two. Like, just, Matt, right? Elisha, dude, you're, you've lost it. You've lost it. And so then Elisha prayed, verse 17, and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. God, please open our eyes that we would see. Open his eyes 
that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so Elisha had spiritual eyes to see that there was a power of God working toward them that was greater than any of the power of evil that stood against them. He had eyes to see the immeasurable greatness. I'm just telling you, right, when, when your opponents show up to fight you and God sends people who are on fire, you're going to win. Like, it's going to go well for you. And so they're surrounded by darkness and the enemy. It, you ever felt that? Like, it just seems everywhere you turn is some sort of attack or fear or insecurity or anxiety or darkness. And you're like, okay, I don't know where to go. And, and <laughs> Lord, open our eyes to see the immeasurable greatness of his power that surrounds that. We're not alone. There's an immeasurable greatness of his power immeasurable like we can't even quantify the greatness i started thinking about that and i was like man like i wish that i had some some way to quantify the the greatness of his power but it's immeasurable and so i started thinking okay what ways can we measure god's power first thing i thought of creation right like we can measure things of the the known world we, we see a planet and we see forces and power and gravity and all these things that the bible says god just spoke into existence with his word like, that's a pretty incredible power. We, we, we've measured uh, up to thus far, um, scientists guess, 13.8 billion light years away. Like, we've seen 13.8, that's a measurement, 13.8 billion light years away. Do you know how many miles that is, 13.8 billion light years? Like, literally, does anybody know? Can, you're, no, okay, you're always my go-to guy. Can, no, okay. It's a lot of zeros. Like, that, that's a long distance that scientists have measured the power of God in creation. You know how many stars there are in existence? I mean, we don't fully know, but scientists guess that there are 10 billion galaxies, billion galaxies in the observable universe with about 100 billion stars per galaxy. Again, that's a lot of zeros. And yet Isaiah 40 says that God has taken every one of those stars and given them a first name. Like, that's, that's a measure of God's power. In, in the Gospels, in Matthew, Jesus says that God knows every number of the hairs on the head of every person. Th there's on average 100,000 hairs per person's head. I realize that I reduce that average. I get that. But some other people increase it for me. But on average, there's 100,000 hairs per person for 7.5 billion people, and God keeps track of every single one on every single person at every single time. That's a measure of God's power. We see in the Gospels where Jesus has power over the wind and the waves. There's a storm, and Jesus is like, stop it. And the wind and the waves stop. There's, there's people who can't see, and Jesus causes them to see. And there's people who can't hear, and Jesus causes them to hear. And there's people who are dead, and Jesus just says, hey, get up and go walk some more. And so we have measures of the power of God, and yet there's an immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. That is mind-blowing. 
Like we take the measure of his powers and we go, oh my gosh, he's so powerful. And then Paul's like, but there's an immeasurable greatness of his power actively working toward your good. That is good news. And it changes our confidence in how we approach the day. It changes it. If we believe this and if we see who God is. And he says that the, the greatest way we can know the power of God working towards us is in the resurrection. He says that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but the one to come. The greatest defeat so it seemed, was when the weight of the world's sins and guilt was placed on Jesus. And so it's not just that he was crucified, it's that he was crushed under the weight of our sins. Come on, we all know the weight of guilt. You know how weighty it feels when you feel guilty and ashamed? So then take the full weight of that guilt in your lifetime. And then take the full weight of that guilt of everybody in this room and then of every person who has ever lived and ever will live, the full weight of that guilt. And Jesus felt the crushing pressure of that and he was put in a grave. And the devil was like, ha ha, we got him. And Jesus just threw it off and stood up and walked out over the greatest weight and death that could happen. And he trampled over it in victory. And it's that power that God's like, hey, I'm going I'm to throw that towards you. And so nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. And he's actively working it towards you. And Paul's praying, God, let them know that. Let them know that. So let's pray. What is it? What is that impossibility? That impossibility in your life? And I'm just going to invite you to set it out there and give it to God. And I don't know how he's going to respond. I don't know if he's going to do what you hope he would do. I just know that he's going to do something great with it. And that nothing is impossible with him. So what is it? What is that impossibility? And would you just set it out there? Would you just set it out there and give it to God? All right, God. I, you want so much for us. Will you help us get out of our own way? Lord, will you, will you let us know, like know the hope that we have in Jesus? God, will you let us see and experience the love you have for us that you would call us your greatest inheritance. 
And would you open our eyes to see the power, the immeasurable greatness of your power at work toward us. The power that is given to us because Jesus is alive. And would you transform our lives, God? Now, would you let this come alive here and now in us, God? Amen. Paul ends this prayer just by saying, by, by, by directing our eyes back to Jesus. And so that's what we want to do here as well. In song and in, in Lord's Supper is just to direct our eyes back to Jesus. And, and I, I just love the picture, right? See, he raised him from the dead and then Jesus sits down on his throne because Jesus is king. He sits down on his throne because he's in control and he's not panicked and he's got this. He's good. And he sits down the right hand in the heavenly places far above everything else. And God put under his feet all things and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That Jesus sat down to rule and to reign and his his headship, his, his sovereign rule is over his church. That's why we have to be a church that leads people to life in Jesus. Because he's the head. If we're finding life anywhere else, then we're looking in the wrong place. That's why the church has to be built around Jesus, not around a pastor or two or some leaders. It's around Jesus. Because apart from him, nothing happens. We have to have him. That's it. This is why it's so important for us to come and to submit and be a part of a church because that is where Jesus is head of. The church. His family, his body. That's why it's so important for us to come and to play our part because he has entrusted in us a role within the church. And he's called us to be obedient to what he's given us. And so if we're going to follow and submit to Jesus, then we have to submit to Jesus as our Lord in the context of a church. It's just not an option in Ephesians 1. Because that is the reign and rule and control that Jesus is exercising in this world, is in his church. And so let me, let me invite you. You're here. Let's be here. Be all in, because this is where Jesus works, is through his church. And I'll tell you, if this is not the church for you, okay. Find one that is, though. Don't, don't hop around and don't passively attend one. Like, be a part of one, because it is a part of the body of Jesus, and he's given us a role within that church. Our King, our Lord, we submit to him. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.